Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later on in today's episode, Cody Garrett will be joining me. Cody Garrett is an advice-only financial planner, passionate about helping families refine their path to financial independence, especially as DIY investors. But before Cody joins us, I'm going to talk about what I think is the most frustrating phrase in personal finance. And before that, I actually want to give a shout out to our review of the week on Apple Podcasts. Savannah Banana 6842 wrote in and said, I originally found you several years ago on a financial subreddit, giving advice to people in the comments. And from there, I subscribed to your newsletter. Finally, all this time later, I've subscribed to your podcast, and I can't believe it's taken me so long to do so. You've continued to put out such accurate, helpful info and give off such a genuine, caring demeanor. The effort you put into your work truly shows, and I can't express how much I appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Savannah Banana, for those exceedingly kind words. If you're hearing this, send me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, and we'll get you hooked up with some sort of nice best interest gift. Thank you, Savannah Banana. Now, after that, okay, let's go on. Let's chat about what I think is the most frustrating phrase in personal finance. Perhaps... No personal finance phrase is more frequently uttered and draws more eye rolls than the phrase, it depends. Ideal personal finance is dependent on the individual it's being applied to. As Carl Richards says, personal finance is more personal than finance. 99% of general advice, including the, the advice that I talk about here on the Best Interest Podcast or what I write about on the Best Interest blog, 99% of general advice It should be couched with the phrase, it depends. For example, should you budget and track every single dollar you spend? It depends. Do you need that level of detail to rein in your spending? Should you put 10% of your income into your 401k? This depends on tons of factors. We need to know many more details about your big four, your assets, your debts, your income, and your spending. Not to mention your unique goals, your desired outcomes. It depends. I understand it's a frustrating answer, but should we avoid using that answer? No way. We we have to use the answer. It depends. It would be irresponsible not to. Good financial advice depends on who you're talking about. Now, one big question I'm answering every day is the question, do I need professional financial help? It depends. Anyone who answers that question differently or answers it in black and white terms They're either ignorant, deceptive, or both. And then if you do need professional financial help, what kind? There are dozens of different services, different products, different business models, different definitions of professional financial help or financial services. So I'll start with a personal anecdote. Now, I'm a pretty big nerd for investing, for financial planning, for personal finance. So I was never an ideal candidate for needing to hire a professional. I enjoyed the hours spent to kind of become this DIY expert. You know, here, a case in point, I enjoyed writing the 200 plus articles on the blog, recording these 60 plus podcasts, pretty much just for the fun of it. And because I was learning that on my own, I never really needed to reach out to a professional for their help. But not all people fall in that boat. And and the thing is, not even all DIYers fall in the same boat. Many DIYers seek out professional help as a safety net saying to themselves either, one, I want a professional to double-check my math, or two, I need a trusted advisor as a backup for my family in case I get hit by a bus. I hear that second one a lot at work. They'll say, Jesse, no offense to you, I'm, I'm comfortable with investing, I'm pretty comfortable with my financial plan, but I'm getting to this point in life where I'm really busy, my spouse doesn't really understand the stuff like I do, my kids certainly don't understand the stuff like I do, And I trust you, Jesse. I trust the firm that you're working for. So I am going to hire you guys because I need a backup in case something happens to me. So does a young couple say, just starting out, do they need professional help? It depends. 
Sometimes the answer is yes. Frequently, the answer is no. Instead, they just need some basic recommendations, like measure your money, start using a budget, or start saving and investing as soon as you can because your early years matter a lot. Pay yourself first. Set aside some money every single month for saving and investing. And when you do so, keep your costs low. That's a big reason why index funds are so popular. Low costs, and they give you the market average return, which is actually a pretty great return. And if you hold them for the long run, they are your friend. Now, some people don't need professional help. Some people desperately need professional help. I have an example from from my professional career where a a staunch and stubborn DIYer was making six-figure mistakes. That's $100,000 plus mistakes because they'd been told in their life, oh, you don't need professional help. They could have spent $10,000 to save $100,000 and they would have saved a lot of their time as well. But someone in their life who was kind of this forever DIY cultist led them astray. They stepped over dollars to pinch pennies. All right, guys, it depends. Some people need professional help. Some people don't. And of course, if you do seek professional help, you need to make sure you're asking those professionals the right questions. Uh, I'm going to throw a link in the show notes. It's from the blog, and it's the 12 essential questions that I would suggest you ask any financial professional before you start to work with them. You need to do your uh, homework and, and do your due diligence and make sure you're working with someone who can truly help you out and has your best interests in mind. Now, quick little sidebar here. Why is it depends such a frustrating phrase, right? Why do we seek certainty in the first place, especially in personal finance? Why do we want black and white answers? Now, in a 2015 article in the Harvard Business Review, two gentlemen, Zachary Tormala and Derek Rucker, they wrote an article about certainty and how it shapes our behavior. And I thought it was really, really good. So here's a a minute-long quote from that article. Certainty profoundly shapes our behavior. The more certain we are in a belief, regardless of its objective correctness, the more durable it will be and the greater influence it will have on what we do. Across dozens of studies spanning more than two decades, consumer and social psychologists have shown that people who are certain of their beliefs are more likely to buy, buy sooner, and spend more. They're more likely to sign petitions and to vote. They're more willing to express their opinions, endorse products, advocate for causes, and try to persuade others to adopt their views. They're better able to withstand attacks on their own beliefs and more inclined to challenge opponents. In short, Certainty is the catalyst that turns attitudes into action, bringing beliefs to life and imbuing them with meaning and consequence. All right, guys, people speak in and then seek out black and white certainty because it gives them the confidence to act. It drives behavior. You and I, we we know it in our heart. We've been in these situations before where we look at an expert and we say, just tell me what to do. Give me some certainty. Show me that you're sure. And then I'm going to be able to act once you give me that certainty. So the question that I'm thinking, bringing it back to personal finance, is how can we deliver financial certainty in a world of it depends? And quick hint, if you're thinking that the answer is annuities, that is certainly not the answer. The answer is financial planning. A good financial plan delivers a little bit of certainty, especially certainty in the short term, But more importantly, it delivers the confidence that long-term uncertainty is okay. Building a 20-year financial plan, it might involve hundreds of different decision points. Roth or traditional, expensive or cheap, get a loan or don't get a loan. Most of those decision points have some sort of it-depends clause attached to them. The financial planning decision tree, therefore, it spirals out of control pretty quickly. I mean, just imagine, if you have 100 binary decisions... 100 yes or no, left or right decisions. That leads to two raised to the 100th power, unique different paths through the decision tree. And if you do the math, which I I mean, there's no real reason to do it. You know it's going to be a big number. It turns out that it's about 1.3 nonillion different paths. That's way bigger than trillions or quadrillions. That's nonillions. So for most of us, facing down something like 1.3 nonillion different options, it is purely a shackle. It's analysis paralysis. How could we ever possibly find any sort of certainty when we're faced with that many different options? But I don't see it that way. 
And, and yes, the complexity of personal finance and financial planning is a challenge. But thankfully, through you know my, my years of, of self-study and now professional study, I see it maybe more in the way that Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea viewed their adventure into the unknown of Western North America. And hopefully through this little story, I, I'm going to encourage you guys to do the same. So I would just want you to think about what Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea were thinking as they began their adventure outside of St. Louis. And if you're unfamiliar with the historical story, the, the long story short is they were tasked with exploring the Western U.S., which as far as Europeans were concerned was completely unmapped. Now Native Americans, of course, had been living there and played a vital role in this adventure. But it was, you know, hey, Lewis and Clark, go put together a party of people and find the Pacific Ocean and tell us how you got there and map it all out. So when they started, I would argue that 99% of the fine details that lay before them were a total mystery. But the broad strokes were vaguely understood. They had a direction and they had a goal, and that's pretty important. They were also well-equipped. They had supplies, they had expertise, and they had experience. They were prepared to face new challenges on the fly. They knew, even as they took their first step, that their plan was surely to change. They knew that their plan wasn't perfect. How could it be perfect? They were tackling the unknown. But nevertheless, they began with a plan in mind. It was the best plan they could muster based on the known facts at the start. And once that plan was in place, they took their first step. They didn't permit uncertainty to paralyze them. And that fact alone is hugely underrated. Now, financial planning is no different. It's maybe just a little bit less rugged. You cannot have a financial plan that perfectly accounts for 1.3 nonillion unique outcomes, but you can understand the broad strokes of your financial future while knowing that the fine details will change over time. You can start out with a direction and you can start out with financial goals. You can equip yourself with financial expertise and experience. These are your tools to overcome new challenges on the fly. My hope here at The Best Interest is that I'm equipping you guys with some of this expertise and experience. You can make the best plan that you possibly can, which includes some judgment calls based on today's facts. But you can also know full well that your plan will change over time because you know today's plan won't be perfect. You're tackling an unknown future. How can today's plan be perfect? And then once you've created today's best plan, you can take your first step and start to enact the plan, eventually changing it over time as more facts and more information come to light. You don't need certainty for billions, trillions, nonillions of scenario. It depends is okay. But you do need a starting point that works for you today. And then you do need the expertise, the experience, and the flexibility to adjust to uncertainty because uncertainty is certain to arise in the future. It depends will always be a frustrating answer, but it shouldn't paralyze you. It shouldn't paralyze this financial adventure that awaits before you. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. So with that, let's bring on Cody Garrett. Again, Cody is an advice-only financial planner, passionate about helping families refine their path to financial independence. He's the founder of Measure Twice Financial, through which Cody works with clients, but he's also the voice behind Measure Twice Money, Measure Twice Money is Cody's social media accounts. It's some video-based financial education. And most recently, Cody launched a podcast of his own that helps both DIY investors and helps a lot of other financial planners uh, with their continuing education. Cody, thank you for joining us on the Best Interest Podcast. Let's start with a fun question. Your website, it shows a, a clean cut, buttoned up Cody, but Maybe you could talk us through the progression of Cody Garrett haircuts over the past decade. Oh, haircuts. So growing up, I was like a dumb and dumber style, like the bowl haircut. Like you could <laughs> literally cut. put a bowl and it was 
like super blonde. Like it was like, I just laid out in the sun all day. Yeah. Growing up as a little kid, I was like the perfect bowl haircut, very blonde. I remember actually going with my uncle to a barber one time and the barber specialized in military haircuts. It was like the <laughs> fastest haircut of all time. Yeah. I, I think the entire haircut was like 15 seconds long. I will just get like a number five and everywhere type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had like kind of the cool buzz cut. Then middle school, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, like gelling just the front, the two inches in the front of the hair up. So huge. not all the spiked, but right. just like the, kind of like the cowlick in the front. Yeah, that was a huge style. Yeah, I had that like the front of the hair gelled. And then I lived in Houston, Texas. And I, I specifically remember that there's a shuttle crash. That, oh, yeah. You know, the shuttle crash. And oh, my, three? My, so, yeah, and my soccer coach was actually one of the one of the astronauts on that flight. So that's a very <laughs> deep transition there. But I wow. want to say that, but I remember specifically that after that happened, I went from like the gelled in the front to spiked all the whole hair spiked gel wise. And then I got to a point of understanding money and I would realize that gel is expensive. No, just kidding. But I, I effectively, <laughs> I didn't like the, I hated when it like Houston where I live, Texas is very humid. So Hot, like, yeah, you know, muggy. like the gel would always be like getting on your hands and gross. And I was like, Ugh. Um, like really from the end of high school all the way to now it's, two on the sides. I go like maybe like once every six weeks, I do like the $10 cut. And then I get it like setting up my hair for the day is taking a shower, just swiping it to one side and I'm done. But I think one thing you're alluding to about this is I was a music director for a Broadway show a few years ago. It was a night with Janis Joplin and I was the music director. And Janis Joplin was this like hardcore, like rock singer back in like the 60s, mm-hmm. 70s. Mm-hmm. And the band was actually on stage for the whole musical, for the whole show. They didn't allow me to shave for like two months before we actually started the show. And they also had me wear a wig for 32 shows in one month. So I wore uh, like a, it, it look, like a lot of people it looks see real. the picture. Right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people who see the picture assume that it was either real or I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar. None of those was true. Yeah. I, I sing backup, not main lead. So <laughs> yeah, I was Janis Joplin's keyboardist on stage. I did 31 shows in one month plus working full time. 40 hours a week. So that was a brutal month, but I got it done and I got paid. So it was good. So you walked us through the progression of Cody Garrett haircuts over time. Now I'm wondering, maybe you can walk us through the progression of Cody Garrett from a financial view over time. Mm. Because as we sit here today, I'm not the only one who views you as a an absolute financial expert. In many ways, you're an expert to the experts because you're doing a lot of teaching of other financial planners But I also know that it wasn't too long ago, Cody, that you weren't really familiar with finances at all. So walk us through that timeline. Yeah, so summarize it in one sentence. It was five years ago, I didn't know what an IRA was. And now I teach over a thousand financial advisors. So you're like, how did that happen? (laughs) So I was actually a professional musician for 10 years, mentioning the musical stuff. I was a music director. I worked full-time at a church as a worship director. I played on the records. I recorded in the studio. I arranged music. I was an orchestrator. I have two degrees in music, one in music theory, Mm. classical side, and one in contemporary piano performance. So I went from music to money, effectively. Back in 2018, by working hard in terms of money, sorry, in terms of music, I was working eight to five, five to eight, eight to 12, pretty much every day doing gigs, wedding gigs, Broadway gigs, on top of working full time. And I was married in 2015. I said, hey, like, this is not sustainable long term in terms of relationships. You know, I didn't have any issues in my relationship in my marriage, but I knew that Effectively, my new metric of success had nothing to do with the amount of albums I played on or the amount of gigs I played or how much money I made. It was, hey, can I create a life where I'm eating dinner with my wife every night for dinner? So I I said, okay, what would it look like in terms of my career to eat dinner with my wife every night? And that meant changing my, at least my full-time job. So I actually, at that point, I was a musician for 10 years. And when your only source of income is variable, you have fixed expenses and variable income, if you don't learn how to become an adult financially, you don't last 10 years as a musician. So as a musician, I, I just try to learn as much personal finance stuff as I could from various like podcasts to go to library, get books. Um, so really like a DIY investor from the beginning, right. even before investments actually started. Just I was probably I was making more than I spent rather than spending less than I make, which uh, sounds like the same phrase, but it's from a different perspective. I was focused on earning income rather than reducing expenses. But uh, at the same time, I had a I lived in an apartment, a garage apartment. My, my rent was 500 bucks a month, including utilities. Nice. I stayed there as long as I could. <laughs> so I always made more than I, I always made more than I, I spent. But with that said, I learned a lot about personal finance. And by the time I thought about transitioning out of professional music full time, 
I said, okay, what else am I good at? What else do I know? And I knew personal finance. Like I feel like I could at least tell people how I did it. I didn't know all the stuff out there, but I, I could at least tell other people how how I've gotten to this place of paying off student loans and things like that as a musician, full-time musician. And there's a lot of mindset around starving musicians versus thriving musicians. I, I definitely consider myself a thriving musician, but still act like I'm starving in terms of like, I'll take free food anywhere there's free food. <laughs> uh, but with that said, I, I took that knowledge and I said, okay, what can I do in personal finance? I actually talked with my mom on the phone one day and she said, what have you been up to? And I said, I've become almost obsessed with personal finance. I'm the type of person and when I learn about a new subject I'm passionate about, I read every book, I listen to every podcast, like, like I go 100% into it. I've done that with chess, jujitsu, all sorts of learning. Now I'm really into motivational interviewing and like counseling and psychology, like I'm just going deep. But she said, hey, well, if you're really into money stuff, you should talk to our friend Joe, family friend Joe. I think he knows a little bit about this stuff. I reach out to Joe. Joe's a, a certified financial planner, a CFP professional. And he said, hey, if you want to really drink out of the fire hose and learn a lot about finance, regardless of if you change careers or not, if you just want to become more knowledgeable about financial stuff, enroll in a CFP education program, which as you know, is drinking out of the fire hose. Like Totally. I, that's going right? all in. Yeah. So about two months into doing that, as a professional musician, I enrolled in the Rice University CFP course. Within two classes, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to help people. The way I define financial planning is building a bridge between a family's comprehensive financial ecosystem, like all the quantitative stuff, building a bridge between that and their unique values and desired outcomes as a family. So once I understood that, that there was a possibility to help people align their quantitative, like the dollar signs with what actually mattered to them as a family, I was like, that sounds awesome. I want to do that all day long. So I listened to two hours of podcasts at two times speed every day for over a year. I got my first job at an independent fee-only financial planning firm. And then two years later, I launched my own firm, specifically serving people like me, the DIY investors on the mm -hmm. path to early retirement. And then now, I mean, again, that was, I launched my own firm in 2020, 2021. So again, we're only two years later and here I am kind of still doing the same thing, not actually accepting financial planning clients at this point. And now I have two other businesses focused on educating, really focused on the future impact of financial planning and education. Right. Which is, at least from my point of view, Cody, having followed you on social media, having met you basically two years ago right now, and first, mm -hmm. that's when I was first aware of you. I think that probably is the biggest impact you're making. Like, it's amazing the fact that you started your own business, that your book of clients is full up. But now I think your influence is really spreading because of all the education you're bringing to other planners, to, to other advisors, and really in our community. But Cody, I'm just curious, was there a specific turning point somewhere in those hours of podcasts or maybe as you, you sat there at Rice University and looked around where you said to yourself like, hey, I'm just as knowledgeable and certainly as, as dedicated as anyone out there and I want to share this because it, it would have been very easy for you to say, well, lots of people are CFPs and, and I'm pretty new to this. Maybe I shouldn't put myself out there and teach, but you really dove in headfirst and made a name for yourself as, as an educator. The biggest concept I learned, and I tell everybody this, is there are two concepts or two ways I say this, which is the best way to learn is to teach. And when you teach, you learn twice. When going through that CFP education program, I realized like the best way that I actually remembered what I was learning is by teaching it to somebody else, whether or not they care to learn it. So I'd get home, my wife, Marissa would be like, hey, how was your class? I was like, it was great. We learned about Roth conversions. This is what a Roth conversion is. And this is how it works, blah, blah, blah. So again, she had the grace and compassion to just sit there and let me tell her. And does, what I realized she, though- Does she now have a CFP too though? Because of you? No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like through me, through me. Yeah. I'll just like, she can borrow my CFP card anytime. So same thing with class. So my classmates, what I realized is the first day or the first like month of the CFP class, I had this imposter syndrome about like most of the other people in the class have been working in the industry for years already. But it was cool to me that they were asking questions I knew the answer to, right? So they were, so the people who had a background in insurance were asking questions about the difference between a Roth IRA and a Roth 401k. And I was like, oh, I like, I actually know the difference between those things. Cool. Yeah. So over time, I realized that everybody in there was, had strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others. And what I would do is in class, I, I just got to the point of like, I, I wasn't scared to ask questions. That's a big part of it. I think anybody on the path of becoming not just financially literal, financially literate, but also just like going beyond the basics, as I call it, right? It comes to a place of getting to a place of saying, I know what I don't know. 
or I don't know what I don't know, or I know just enough to know what I don't know now. I always say, anytime you feel like you know it all, walk into a library, you look around, you're like, wow, there's so much I don't know. So I started asking questions to the professors, asking questions to my fellow classmates. And over time was funny, they, they ended up all wanting me in their study groups. They're like, Cody, can you join our study group? Because I also think that as a professional musician, I came into the industry as like a dry sponge, whereas the, the others who came into the CFP program, they were wet sponges that had to like be like all the stuff they had learned in the past had to be kind of wrung out and like relearn everything. Because when you're learning for the CFP education and exam, you have to actually like unlearn the stuff. So I came in as a dry sponge, like being able to soak up all the stuff I really needed to know to be successful in this industry from the beginning on the financial planning side. So a lot of the other people in the class wanted to learn from me. So I got to the place where even now I have conversations with over a hundred other financial planners a year. I teach over a thousand financial planners now. And it's just because I know that the more I teach others, I really tighten the screw of knowledge in my own mind. That's awesome. And, and I've talked about here on the best interest before. My parents were both teachers and I have a, a love for education. And I, and I think a big reason of why I do this uh, here on the best interest, why change careers from engineering to a, to a fee-only advising model is because of that desire for education. I, I think education is great. I love teaching. I love getting up in front of a room of people. I've never really experimented with some of the digital courses and like digital teaching, but put me up in live in front of a room of 10 or 20 or 100 people there to learn. And it just, it, it lights my fire. But I'm, I'm curious now, Cody, so you've been doing this fee-only financial planning, or I should say advice-only financial planning. Right. And maybe we can actually just pause there for a second before I get to my next question. The average listener probably doesn't know what advice only means. So can you mm-hmm. dive into that for us? Yeah, think about the, the, the phrase itself, the term itself, the label, advice only. You know, the word only sounds limiting for a minute. <laughs> True. It, advice is really what it's about. So imagine for a minute, Justin, do you have any, do you have any siblings? I have two older brothers. Awesome. Two older brothers, right? So let's say that you came to like an older brother and said, hey, like, do you have any advice on what I should do with my investments? You'd expect them to tell you, to give you recommendations. You wouldn't expect them to do it for you. You wouldn't expect them to be like, oh, well, transfer your money to me and I'll manage it for you, right? So think about the same way. Like advice only means I provide personalized financial education to help families make their own well-informed decisions. And what that means is I provide advice for a flat fee but I don't sell any insurance or investment products and I don't have the obligation, right? Or even the option to manage client investments. So I don't manage any investment accounts. All I do is provide personalized education and advice. And then it's up, not just up to them, but even more importantly, these are DIY investors. You'd call them like do-it-yourself investors, but just because you're do-it-yourself doesn't mean you have to do it alone. So for example, I provide financial advice to people and then we, I actually screen share with them and show them how to implement their own trades. So they'll show me their Fidelity account and I'll show them, hey, here's how I review cost basis information, you know, your unrealized, realized capital gains and losses. But I, effectively, I'm, I'm providing that really personalized education, understanding really everything in their number, uh, everything in their life with a number on it. <laughs> so now that I understand everything in their life with a number on it and understand their qualitative values, desired outcomes, now I can teach them how to be successful in managing their own money moving forward, even without my help. It's similar to teaching a man to fish or teaching a woman to fish rather than just handing them the fish or doing the fishing for them. So that actually brings up kind of my next question, Cody. And and maybe the answer is it depends. And we can kind of talk about the nuance of the question itself. But are there any topics that really come to mind that live in this transition zone that I'm about to define? And the transition zone is between you know, over here is all the financial stuff that everybody can or should be doing on their own versus on the other side, here's some stuff that's pretty complex and, and it's maybe punishing if you mess it up or screw it up. And therefore you ought to reach out and consult some sort of say CFP professional. Yeah. The big one is nearly every movement of money involves a tax consequence or specific exclusion from that consequence. So I would say, don't try to do tax planning by yourself. What I mean by tax planning, a lot of us are thinking tax preparation when they hear this. They're like, well, I don't file my own tax returns or, or I might use TurboTax or something like that. Like yep. tax preparation looks backward. 
at the previous year. Right, right. At the previous right. year specifically, tax planning looks ahead. And it's not just looking ahead at this next year, but it's looking ahead, not just through the end of your life, but the multiple generations ahead. So I think tax planning is one of those things where, again, most financial advisors actually still do not touch tax planning. Right? If you're working with a financial advisor and they don't look at your tax returns, there's a good chance they're not doing tax planning. So we have to understand where we are before determining where to go and how to get there. So that means, yes, we do need to understand what your tax situation has looked like in the past, what those filings have looked like. Also looking at your anticipated sources of income, taxable and non-taxable income for the year. And that's where we really get into those like Roth conversion strategies. We look at donor advice funds, like how can we do tax optimized charitable giving? So these are things that you can learn on your own, but it's really easy to learn what to do in the current year, but it's very hard to understand with an end in mind, hey, the things I'm doing today, how is that going to impact me and my future family, you know, my, what I call the financial family tree in the future? So I think that what you, what you can do yourself is definitely you can, learn, you can learn the rules and the concepts, but it's very difficult to learn the practical application in alignment with what's important to you, not other people. So a good example of this, I moderate a Facebook group with a lot of retirees in it, or even pre-retirees, and people ask questions such as, should I contribute to a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k? And every comment is Roth, traditional, traditional Roth. <laughs> and pretty much every place, by the way, even, even a lot of the great content out there in terms of quote unquote personal finance, typically you're being educated on what they would do or what they would do based on their own circumstance, not what, not what you should do based on your personal circumstance. So I actually trademarked the phrase, keep finance personal, which effectively means you know, we, we all talk about personal finance, but we're typically focused on the finance, not the personal side. So I think if you want to take your finance to become really personal finance, I think it's good to walk, have somebody walk alongside you, not as the hero of the story, but as the guide kind of think about, you know, you're not hiring somebody to be Luke Skywalker, like you are Luke Skywalker, and you're going to hire somebody to be Yoda. A really good visual of this, a lot of people who are new to the financial world, you understand what like a spotter in the gym, right? Imagine, uh, Jesse, you ever do the bench press in the gym? Once or twice, yeah. Once or twice. That's exactly how many times I can do it. <laughs> yeah. So think about a spotter in the gym. Let's say that I'm doing the bench press. The spotter in the gym, like they aren't lifting the weights for me, but they are educating me on proper form. They might be challenging me beyond my own limiting beliefs on how many reps I could do. But one thing they are doing is they are keeping me from dropping the weights on my face. Right. They're, they're a safety right? valve or safety net, right? I should say. Big so, safety so think net. Of, Right. So think about a financial planner the same way. It's like, yes, like you can learn how to, you can learn how to create your own fitness routine and you can learn proper form by watching YouTube and stuff. But it's the difference between you going to the gym, walking around and kind of looking at all these different plates and figure out like, uh, I guess I'll start with this. I guess I'll start with this versus having like a, a personalized coach that can say, hey, I can actually see deficiencies in parts of your body you're not even thinking about right now. You're thinking about your biceps and your chest. And I actually see that you have issues with uh, you know, movement in your, your ankle or your gait, which is your walking, right? So it's really coming to somebody and saying, hey, like do a full body scan you know, of your finances and say, what am I missing here? So it doesn't mean you have to hire somebody to do it for you or that you have to commit to some ongoing forever. It's not a permanent decision, but I think it's worth most people just getting like, I, 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 the name of my brand is Measure Twice. Have somebody give you a second opinion so that you can make sure that your, your personal decisions are actually in alignment with your values and what you'd actually desire to happen in the future. Yeah, Cody. Now, it's funny because with my clients, I, I tell my clients, they are Luke Skywalker. And I say that, you said that you're their Yoda. Personally, I say that I'm Chewbacca. I guess I'm just a <laughs> Chewbacca guy. <laughs> you just make the noises, yeah. <laughs> that was really good. Can you actually can you actually say that longer into the microphone so that we can use it as our we can there use it go. as our tr our transition noise now. Whenever we transition to like a little soundbite on the Best Interest podcast, Cody, take it away. There you go. There's our Chewbacca. <laughs> but that that's that's really interesting. I mean, taking a couple steps backwards there, tax planning. Tax planning is such a huge uh, and underrated topic, or I should say, maybe overlooked is the better word mm. than underrated, uh, because I think the 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 sexy thing in any mm. sort of financial planning, financial advising, whatever you want to call it, investments. Everybody always goes to like, oh, well, investments, that's how I'm going to make my money, which, okay, sure, investing is a big part of it, and mm. investments are how your money was, uh, will grow over time, but tax planning is so concrete in, in many ways. And investing is is hard. There's a big question mark as to 
you don't necessarily know how your investments will grow. Uh, you know, diversification helps as far as kind of minimizing some of the risk over time. But tax planning is this concrete way that I think the average person out there is completely unaware of ways that they can save significant money over time. Or if they don't do proper tax planning, will end up just paying significantly more taxes than they they really have to. And and we'll we'll see. We'll tease this out a little bit more, Cody. I mean, tax planning. Are there any specific things? Maybe you can walk us through an example. It could be a real client or just a hypothetical client of, I mean, what exactly is tax planning? What are we looking at here? Sure. A big part of tax planning is something that we can all, most of us can relate to is contributing to a retirement plan. And a lot of your listeners, you know, 403B, 401Ks, IRAs, all those things, there's a big decision to make, right? Your first job, you get, you're like, hey, I've been enrolled in this 401K. You're like, I don't know if I should sign up for the 401k. I don't know if I could run that far, but right, this is 401k plan. Yeah, you got it, Jess. Yeah, you got the you got the the joke there. That, that's like that's like 250 miles, man. Yeah, that's a lot of miles. Yeah, so I'm not signing up for the 401k. It's too. That's a very long way to run. But you do get enrolled in like typically a, a workplace retirement plan in one of your first jobs. You get a 401k, and you have to fill out the paperwork. And you know now it's online, thankfully. But it says, do you want to contribute to traditional or Roth? And you're like, what the heck? And then you learn a little bit. Traditional means you know pre-tax contributions, which means that it's that income is excluded, excluded or deducted from your taxable income for the, for the current year. And then Roth is you pay taxes in the current year, but when you can you know you contribute, you hope you know, it grows tax deferred, and then you hope that in the future you can take that money out tax free, right? But a lot of people get focused; they get really excited about one side of the coin. They get really excited about the exclusion or deduction from income, or they get really excited about this tax-free distribution in retirement. And there's a lot of content really focused on one or the other. One is people are really like, there's a fear of taxes that a lot of people have, or more of a hatred of taxes, and especially right, right. depending on which side of, I think actually, regardless of which side of like the political fence you are, like most people don't like paying more taxes than they should, than they have right, to. Right. Right. But I say that most people are making this decision based on the current year. Most people are saying, hey, I have a fear of future taxes, right? So I'm going to do Roth. And by the way, like even if they're thinking about the future, the fear is it's their current fear, mm-hmm. right? Their current fear of taxes. And on, on the flip side, some people are saying, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this tax deduction while I, while I can. I'm going to go ahead and do like traditional. So I do think, I don't want to scare anybody here, but I think that a majority of people are making the wrong decision between traditional and Roth because it's actually not really the traditional and Roth contribution decision is actually should not really be based as much on where you currently are. It should be based on where you're going to be in the future. And what I mean by that is at least making an estimate, a ballpark assumption of what my future sources of, of taxable income and expenses are going to be whenever I need this money. So every time somebody contributes to account, this is a good rule of thumb for you. Anytime you contribute any money to any account, ask yourself or, or tell yourself, every dollar needs a job and a use by date. What's the purpose of this dollar? And when do I expect to use this money, use this dollar in the future to support my desired lifestyle? So for an example, most people who are on the path to early retirement, which I, I kind of say as you know, before 59 and a half or before other significant retirement income sources like social security, mm-hmm. um, again, this is very broad. There's a lot of, it depends to this, but a majority of them would be better off making traditional contributions Right. So excluding income at their highest marginal tax rate while working and then in early retirement, having a very low income floor, like then implementing those intentional Roth conversions at, at a lower margin. So the back, just a quick thing here is that, yeah, yeah. you know, excluding income at the highest marginal rate and then in retirement, having a much lower effective average tax rate in which you're converting and distributing those, those dollars. So, you know, that's a very technical thing, but that's one example of yeah. something that most people can think about is, hey, should I contribute pre-tax or Roth? Getting that one thing right is kind of like the 80% that could really put you on the path to maximizing after-tax wealth, not just maximizing wealth in general. Right. So so to, to go into that example a little bit more and apply some numbers to it, you're working with, say, a software engineer, Silicon Valley. They're making $300,000 this year. Uh, but they right. only spend $100,000 per year, which is why they're on the path to fire. Uh, they want to retire early, say at age 40. And when they are 40, they're going to need that $100,000 in income from somewhere to support their lifestyle. It's going to come from their investments. And so what you're saying, Cody, is if you're making three hundred grand this year, you're in a pretty high tax bracket. You want to save on taxes now. 
because later when you're only spending a hundred grand from year, your income is going to be significantly lower and Mm -hmm. you don't need to save on tax dollars when you're in that lower income bracket in the future. So if you plan taxes here in 2023 with that future in mind, you're going to make significantly better tax decisions. Absolutely. A really good example. I actually pulled up here marginal versus effective tax rates. Yeah. Let's say a, a really crazy example is let's say somebody is in the 24% marginal tax bracket, which means um, they would have an uh, adjusted gross income, uh, married filing jointly here of about $218,000. Okay. To have a 24% effective tax bracket in retirement, they'd have to be distributing $599,000 from that account each year. So what are the chances of somebody who's making 200,000 while working distributing 600,000 in retirement? And with a big assumption here is, again, I, I'm a big fan of traditional contributions, but that's specifically because I'm working with people who plan to retire early, have decades worth of you know, smoothing out their tax ride, and also not having significant, other significant sources of retirement income. So that's just one example of how, again, just measure twice before making that important decision. But thankfully, you can make that decision annually. It doesn't have to be a permanent decision to go, I have to go traditional my whole life or have to go Roth. Like, you can make that decision on an annual basis, but you need to be thinking decades into the future before making that decision. Yeah. What, what about, Cody, when someone says, hey, Cody, this is great. I know what the tax brackets are this year in 2023, but sure. I have no idea what the tax brackets are going to be in the future. Therefore, my default is simply to diversify between traditional and Roth. Maybe I'm going traditional in my 401k and I'm going Roth in my IRA. What's your response to, to someone who says that? So first of all, I, I always... Uh, tell every client that I work with, every person I educate on personal finance that always make decisions based on what's currently known and within your control. So that means actually not guessing what the future is going to say. That is uh, actually the the only thing that we do know, again, this could change too, right? Is the sunset of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, right? Right. January 2026, right? So all I know is, yes, marginal tax rates are going up, but there's, there's a key phrase here, which is, I'm not concerned about f- the future tax rates. I'm focused on my future right. taxable an in, income. An individual. So, right. Yeah. So even, even if tax rates doubled right now, I'd actually still be better off with my decision. But again, I'm, but I'm, not, I'm not making the decision based on the future. I'm making decisions based on what's currently known and within my control. One thing you mentioned there that's really important is a, a general rule of thumb. Again, don't, you know, don't take this as advice. But generally, if your household has too much income, to be able to to directly contribute to a Roth IRA, meaning that the only way you could contribute to a Roth IRA is by doing the backdoor Roth IRA, Yep. then you most likely are better off if you have access to a 401k, maxing out your traditional 401k, not your Roth 401k, right? So that that signifies to me that you you have probably a pretty high marginal tax rate at that point. So somebody who who makes too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA directly, should probably be going traditional in their 401k and then doing the backdoor Roth IRA. So it's almost like the IRS is giving you a hint. Hey, you make too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA directly. Most likely you should not be contributing to a Roth 401k. Right. And and just to be clear to any listeners out there, they might be saying, well, Cody, if I'm making that much money, you're telling me to contribute to the traditional 401k so I can save on tax dollars. Why don't I also contribute to a traditional IRA to save even more on tax dollars? It's because? It's because there's also income thresholds to be able to deduct a traditional IRA contribution, which by the way, those income thresholds are actually even lower than the thresholds to contribute directly to a Roth IRA. Right. They couldn't contribute and deduct from their traditional IRA anyway. So their only option- Unless, right. Their only option is to do the backdoor uh, Roth IRA. That's the only IRA option that's available to someone right. at, at that kind of income level. Right. right. I want to add a little uh, a little fun fun fact and misconception here is that you can never make too much money to contribute to a traditional IRA. Correct. But right, whether or not you can deduct that contribution. So keep in mind that you know if some people say I can't contribute to a traditional IRA, I make too much money. What that really means is they make too much money to deduct their contribution, but they can still make their contribution, which is how you do that backdoor Roth we, we mentioned earlier. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Technical stuff. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I mean, listen, everybody, if you want to if you wanna hear Cody and I just dive deep on SEC guidelines and IRS tax codes, we will be here all day. Um, <laughs> Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. 
One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a webpage. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. All right, Cody. So we got a question in from Twitter. We'll give it a shot. It says, my young children received a six-figure gift from their great-grandmother and their near lifetime contribution limits on their 529s. Do I understand correctly that their taxed investment accounts would be assessed at our high marginal tax bracket? Where should I put extra money for my kids? Hmm. I think what they're going at there is the kitty tax which effectively is if your children have too much unearned income, it can be taxed at a higher tax rate. But you know, with dependents, I think what they're saying there is they're worried that, and it's actually true, you know, after a certain point, the investments, really the investment income, the interest and dividend and capital gain distributions within the, you know, the kids' investment accounts can actually like kind of effectively flow through and be treated as if it's part of the household tax return. Right. So uh, I, tax, I, I think tax at the parents' rates, basically. Right. But yeah. Right. So you you definitely want you typically want to tax at the parents' rate rather than like those kitty tax, like those really high tax rates. So uh, yeah, effectively, you know, those can flow through kind of like as a household. Again, once your children are no longer tax dependents and filing their own tax return, like they'll have that benefit of be able to have their own standard deductions and all those things. Yeah, and, including for the investments. One thing that question touched on actually is 529 plans, Cody. Mm -hmm. I know that most listeners of the Best Interest Podcast, most, not all, but they're somewhere Mm -hmm. around your and my ages, maybe late Mm -hmm. 20s to 40 or so. Lots of children involved in in people who are those age, and they have questions about 529 plans. I mean, just off the cuff, 529 plans, thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you have any interesting or unique thoughts on them? Thumbs up, but not for all education. So again, my personal bias here is I've seen a lot of people overfund 529s. Even that that's a really great example. You talk about like they've maxed out the 529s. I probably wouldn't want to like over contribute to a 529. What I mean by there is that if if money is not used for qualified education expenses, there's a penalty on that money. So I I actually take a my own bias. I have a um, I actually welcome like we can put a, a link in the description to I actually have an education savings calculator. It's like a, an Excel calculator that your users can have fun with. Awesome. Uh, again, like you know, uh, run your own numbers, use your own assumptions, have fun with it. But effectively, um, I prefer saving for education to split your education contributions, typically half and half between a 529 education savings plan and a taxable brokerage account, not owned by the children, but owned by the parents of the children. One thing to keep in mind is that when you do try to, let's say you were to apply for financial aid, right? Mm-hmm. The assets of the children, the assets owned by the kids up to 20% of that can be used for the expected family contribution, right. which only 5.64% 5. can be 6. used of the parents' assets. So uh, an- another trick there would be like for the grandparents to own the 529 and to the transfer ownership. And again, that is like, sometimes that's like over-optimizing, like getting two in the weeds over-optimizing. So I, I would just tell people like, I prefer to split education savings between a 529 and use the 529 because it does provide the tax benefit for qualified education. But in terms of additional flexibility, especially we don't know how much education is going to change in the next 20 years. It could look exactly the same. Hopefully not, but it, you know, hopefully it looks different than it looks today. But yeah, I, I would I would talk about hedging your bets there, right? Based on what I currently know, what's in my control is that education is kind of changing a shift, like taking a shift. And not every institution is qualified and not all educational experiences are through an institution, right? Like maybe, maybe paying for a tutor or paying for like private classes somewhere that's not a qualified institution but you could still have money there for that child if you had split your contributions between a 529 plan and a taxable brokerage account owned by the parents uh, right. for the benefit of the child. Yeah, uh, Cody, something that you've reminded me of a couple times in this conversation is a recent article I wrote this this week just about that phrase, it depends. So much of what we're talking about, it depends on the individual. It depends on that the individual family that you're working with. And yeah, 529 planning is something that when I've talked about before, very similar to your thoughts there, which is sure, maybe it's dependent on the individual family, but because you really don't want to overfund and some of the people who I've talked to before are thankfully, they're pretty educated on it and they are concerned about overfunding. Uh, So right, so 
hedge your bets and split 50-50 between the taxable brokerage and a 529 plan. I like that solution a lot. I will also challenge your listeners thinking about education funding. Ask yourself, how am, how am I going to invest in my child financially before college? And I'm not just talking about private high school, private like, education. I'm talking about what would it look like to go on a trip to a foreign country as a family to get like real life education, not just academic education. So maybe rather than overfunding that 529, maybe you, you kind of slow down the 529 contributions and spend more money as a family having some really um, unique educational experiences that aren't in, in the classroom. Maybe becoming a professional musician or going to CFP school. All good options. So, something like that. Something. Yeah. I, a lot of people are like, I'm not letting my kid become a musician, but yeah, it, it can work <laughs> out. I promise. Cody, so you've got a lot of things going on and I'm just curious, what is next on your, your project list or, or what are you working on, whether it's within the financial community or not? Mm -hmm. And then if people want to reach out to you, if they want to connect, follow your content, maybe they want to learn from you and take one of your courses, how, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So uh, I have three businesses. Measure Twice Financial is my, my advice-only RIA, advice-only financial planning firm. That's at full capacity, not accepting future client relationships. If you are looking for advice-only planning, uh, it wouldn't be with me, sorry. But um, you could go to adviceonlynetwork.com. I have no conflict to send people there. I don't get paid or anything for those referrals, but it's a good place to find advice-only financial planners. The second business is Measure Twice Planners, which is a, is a way where I provide comprehensive education to financial advisors, financial planners, really to go beyond the basics and learn more ways that they can provide more value to the families they serve as financial advisors, financial planners. There's over 25 hours of educational content there today, and we're adding more every month. That includes live calls where we look at, we review real financial documents together in real time on video calls. And we have a lot of fun just learning from each other within a very generous and transparent group of advisors. Lastly, if you are a non-advisor and not interested in being a financial advisor at some point, Measure Twice Money is my third business, measuretwicemoney.com. That's where I provide free, comprehensive financial education resources. You know, I don't sell anything there at, at this moment. So it's, and it's, by the way, it's not the, it's not the articles on, here's a little bit of information. And by the way, if you want more information, sign up for this. It's just, I give it all away. I, I believe that generosity is giving to others without expecting anything in return. That's the definition of kindness. So measuretwicemoney.com. In the future, there is going to be a comprehensive video course called How to Create a Comprehensive Financial Plan for Consumers. So teaching you how to create your own comprehensive financial plan as a family, that's probably coming in the next year or so. So go ahead and if you want, you could subscribe to updates at measuretwicemoney.com. Social media, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, look up Cody Garrett CFP or Measure Twice. If you just type in Cody Measure Twice into Google, you'll find all my different platforms. Cody, thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. I'm so glad we we coincidentally crossed paths two years ago at FinCon. And it's been really fun to, to watch you grow from afar. And I'm excited to keep on learning from you in the future. Ditto. Absolutely. It was, it was great to meet you. And I'm glad that uh, our, our friendship continues. All right. Wookie and Yoda out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.